Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and changing the world. And we have two guests today who are certainly doing that. Nick Kristoff is the New York Times columnist and Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, New York Times columnist since 2001, uh, who has written about so many important social change issues, has a new book that he wrote with his wife, Cheryl Wudan, called Tightrope, uh, America Reaches for Hope. Um, and he is just probably uh, one of the most important journalists in the country in terms of the work we do at Share Our Strength with the No Kid Hungry campaign uh, in making sure that issues of hunger, poverty, inequity, and social justice uh, reach a mainstream audience. Uh, Nick, it's really an honor to have you with us. Thanks. Oh, great to be with you. Uh, and also uh, a longtime uh, friend and colleague of mine, Allison Barlow, who's the director of the Johns Hopkins Center on American Indian Health. Uh, she's been doing this work, I think, since uh, 1991. Allison, if I have it right, uh, they do amazing work partnering with tribal communities. And Allison uh, has taught us at Share Our Strength a lot about the importance of home visiting and uh, different parenting uh, skills that families need. They're doing this work now in the time of COVID-19. They're testing, tracing, uh, providing invaluable supplies. Uh, Share Our Strength has been a uh, one of uh, a small supporter of many great supporters that the center has. Allison, it is great to have you with us. Really great to be here and thank you for all your support for our work. Well, you know, we're having this conversation at a time where uh, the COVID crisis is almost unimaginably getting worse, not quite unimaginably, because a lot of people told us that it was going to be getting worse. But I know it takes a terrible, terrible toll on uh, Native Americans. And uh, Nick wrote a really powerful uh, piece in The New York Times back in May about uh, the top COVID hotspots uh, all being uh, on Indian lands. Uh, I would love for both of you to just uh, enlighten us, share with us what is going on uh, in Native American communities right now with COVID as this crisis even worsens. I mean, Allison is much more up to date about where they stand, but I must say what, you know, what drove me the report from Navajo Nation was not only that, uh, you know, at the time, I think the, I think at the time, the five, uh, uh, you know, if they'd been considered, if the tribes were considered states, then the five highest uh, incidents of COVID states role have been native lands. Um, but just that the backdrop is neglect and poor health. And uh, here is a country that we, you know, in Navajo Nation, uh, the life expectancy in normal times is shorter than in Guatemala. In, uh, in three counties in the U.S., uh, which are native counties, uh, life expectancy is shorter than in Bangladesh or Cambodia. And uh, this is because of choices we make as a country and policy choices that we, that we have pursued for many years. And then on top of it, uh, COVID-19 came along and native communities were very poorly served by policies to uh, to deal with that and so so that was the that was the the context that I came from but but Allison uh, forgets more in you know a day than I ever knew about uh, these issues so Allison oh thank you so much and and Nick you just nailed it I, I think the history that a lot of Americans don't know is that infectious diseases were used as a weapon to kill Native Americans when the colonists first came to the United States the infectious disease rates for Native Americans are three to five times higher than for other Americans due to a, 
a myriad of issues, mainly social determinants. The, the native peoples we're working with in rural communities um, don't have secure water access, don't have food security, live in multi-generational households that are overcrowded. So elders are living with little ones and the spread of infection is um, really easy. Put on top of that, they don't have running water to wash their hands. They don't have money to store two weeks of food should they need to quarantine. They can't spread out in their household if someone's ill. They use uh, wood burning stoves to heat their homes, which actually irritates the respiratory system and increases one's risk for COVID. So it's just the perfect storm. Um, and I think I, what has been so beautiful to see is the value system of Native American communities is one of protecting one's community. And um, these tribes have put their people first before politics or, or their economies. Um, they are just working day in and day out to save their people. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. And uh, Allison, tell us what, what is the role of the, the center, the Center on American Indian Health at Johns Hopkins that you direct? What's been the role of the center in, in this work? Uh, well, let's talk about now during COVID, and then I want to come back and talk about, uh, you know, pre-pandemic times. Sure. So when we heard of the, you know, first cases getting to the United States in early in, in 2020, we just started to mobilize. We knew it was going to be bad based on past pandemics. Um, so immediately we, we have a memorandum of understanding with the Indian Health Service, and that dates back to our founding in 1991. And that allows us to actually pivot our workforce to be embedded with Indian Health Service during a crisis like this. So we immediately started shifting our folks who work on different behavioral mental health and infectious disease projects to COVID. And they became boots on the ground for um, contact tracing and um, testing. We taught a lot of paraprofessionals to actually do swabbing and blitz testing. And then doing these very comprehensive wraparound services we started that work with the tribes where we've worked the longest, um, the Navajo and White Mountain Apache, which out of some divine grace, I think, um, they you know, were the first communities to be hit, but we felt so um, grateful that we had so many boots on the ground there to help out. Since uh, Nick's column that helped raise over um, $2 million for our center, uh, we then began to partner with other national tribally run agencies um, to distribute food and baby supplies and um, other really important uh, health communication materials to tribes across the United States. What's been happening most recently because we were able to develop a method with partners at Indian Health Service and the tribal health divisions and tribal leadership to really flatten the curve, now we have dozens of tribes asking for support in the public health response in Montana, in the Dakotas, in the Great Lakes region. So we have our work cut out for us. Um, but I think we um, really have witnessed that tribal communities, because they're sovereign nations, can enact policies that work. And if they have adequate resources, they can mobilize to flatten the curve. So. I hold great hope for these communities, um, even though we know that winter is going to be incredibly tough. Well, I know, and you reinforced that Nick's column was uh, really uh, powerful in bringing support to 
the center and to this work. Uh, just go back. How did the two of you come together? How did you meet? How did you get involved in the work of the center, Nick? You know, I've been I've been looking over the years for organizations to uh, highlight that work with Native communities, and that's partly because I think. You know, this year, for example, I think there has been a growing understanding of black-white racial issues in America and the disadvantage that uh, that comes to African-Americans in so many aspects of life. But Native Americans really haven't been part of this conversation to nearly the same degree. And so I've over the years, I've kind of looked for ways to try to highlight that, to describe it, and um, then came across the... Uh, center and really liked the idea that it was doing something practical. I thought it would capture the imagination of uh, of readers who might want to help, um, and indeed it did. <laughs> it really did, and it was great. It was great also just to see what the you know what, what the center was doing, how it was actually helping out in uh, in Navajo Nation. So Nick, I always think of your writing, which I always learned so much from. Uh, as bringing to the fore, you know, issues or groups, populations that uh, are often just not front and center. Uh, they're often vulnerable. They're sometimes uh, voices are not heard to the degree to which they should be. Uh, as a journalist, uh, as an author, do you have a long list of organizations that are, or causes that you're you're still trying to get to? I, I'm always, you know, kind of amazed at how how do you prioritize? How do you pick and choose? Because it's, I'm sure, and I'm sure you hear from a lot of people that say, you've got to write about my work. How does, how does, how does that land on your shoulders? Yeah. So I, um, about, I don't know, I think it was 11 years ago. Um, I started a series of, uh, holiday columns in which I recommended, particular nonprofits that I thought were doing interesting things that people might want to uh, make what I call the gift of meaning. So instead of giving, you know, your Aunt Mabel uh, <laughs> a bottle of perfume or your Uncle Harry uh, another necktie that neither particularly wants, then, you know, then donate to a nonprofit in their name that is really doing interesting things. So I started to list some interesting groups, both abroad and at home. And it raised a lot of eyebrows within the New York Times. Should a journalist really be doing this? I was a little concerned about reputational risk. What if I recommend a group and then it, you know, then the leader uh, absconds with money? Um, but uh, so far, fortunately, that hasn't happened, and it really has caught on. And I think it's because there are an awful lot of folks who, um, you know, who have plenty of money who would like to help out, but they don't really, they don't quite trust charities. They don't know who to give to. And meanwhile, you know, their business school is calling them and saying, oh, you know, donate 500,000 to the business school. And they know that may not be an optimal use of, of, of resources, but they don't really know who else to support. And so if I can step up and try to provide a bridge between um, readers who have more money than they know what to do with and, uh, nonprofits doing extraordinarily important good work, both abroad and at home, then uh, that's just a great kind of matchmaking. And uh, so um, so that was the the context. Uh, normally, I've done it with, with the, the Christmas holidays, but 
this year because of COVID, I did a, a sort of a special edition uh, for organizations working on COVID. And that's where the Center for American Indian Health came in. It was one of the groups that I recommended in that context. And readers stepped up and donated more than $7 million to these groups. Uh, Incredible. Just, yeah, it really was extraordinary. Uh, and it always makes me think that if, you know, at Share Our Strength, you know, our kind of philosophy is that everybody has a strength to share. Everybody has something to give. Uh, and I guess at the end of the day, uh, you know, if I came to a fork in the road, I would choose that people are basically good and want to do the right thing, but they need to know more and they need to have information presented to them in a way that's accessible and interesting. And that's something that you're able to do. And when it happens, people really respond. Yeah. And, you know, in general, I'd say we're not nearly as smart about giving money away as we are in making it. Um, and we tend to we tend to give money to people who are good at asking for it rather than those who can yes. do it well. <laughs> and <laughs> so, you know, so I mentioned, you know, business schools. I mean, um, you know, they are really good at going after their alumni who tend to be very affluent and pitching things extremely well. And, um, you know, and all the time as a journalist, I see uh, for-profit organizations that are pitching their, you know, their, their products uh, with great sophistication. And uh, I think that, you know, marketing is also important in the nonprofit world where truly, you know, lives are at stake. And, um, and if we can figure out better ways of making those connections, then yes, people absolutely want to help. They will. Uh, Allison, we've known each other, I'm thinking 25 years. We got involved in your work uh, early. We were so impressed at the time um, and our focus and, and, and the focus that you guided us towards was the nutritional conditions uh, on American Indian lands separate from what's going on in this moment at the pandemic, what should we understand about that? What are the needs? What are the opportunities to make a difference? There's so much to understand. And thank you for the question. I think because of colonization and the historical traumas that native people have faced over the generations, they have lost their sacred relationship to food in many respects. Um, so now they are on lands where Take the Navajo Nation, for example. It is the size of West Virginia, and it has 13 grocery stores. I think my neighborhood that's, you know, probably 10 blocks square has three grocery stores. So that alone just begins to tell you the incredible um, food insecurity that uh, and, and conditions under which people are trying to raise kids. I know Share Strength cares so much about children and young children, um, and the work that you've supported at our center was really to dig in and figure out how we can help overcome early childhood obesity, which is the result of historical trauma and food insecurity. Kids on um, Native American reservations, by the time they're two years old, about one-fifth of them are already obese. And about 40% of um, many rural Native American communities uh, are obese. And this leads to all kinds of underlying conditions that now are putting people at such high risk for severe COVID from diabetes to cardiovascular disease. Um, 
you might know too that the federal government provides commodities foods um, to low-income tribal communities as they do in other low-income um, American communities. But these commodities are limited to foods that are really low in nutritional value and, and high in fats and carbohydrates. And they're, they're just a recipe for poor health. Um, so there's so much work to be done to help tribal communities regain their autonomy to have that sacred relationship with food and the earth. And there are so many good things beginning to happen um, through the movements of Native American peoples taking back their cultures and traditions around food. Um, but there's a lot of work to do. And I think and focusing on young parents and their children is a way to make uh, a two generational impact. And we've been so grateful that Shar Strength has invested in that area of our work. Well, let me ask you about something you just said, uh, having to do with Native autonomy. I saw on your website as I was reading and catching up um, a statement about the center's mission, uh, increasing Native autonomy. Um, and I didn't, honestly, I didn't completely understand what you meant by it. And I'm not sure everybody does. So maybe this would be a good opportunity to just uh, help us. Yes, thank you so much. So a lot of people don't know that um, tribes are, are sovereign nations within our borders. They have a federal to federal or nation to nation status with our federal government. That gives them, because they are sovereign, that gives them a lot of, of power if they have the people resources to retake control of their healthcare and educational systems and their, and their societies. Right now, they are dependent on the federal government for their healthcare and education. That was part of their treaty rights. But if you go into a Native American school or a Native American hospital, you don't see Native Americans in those roles as teachers and doctors and nurses, very few. And so our center is really committed to a training mission where we are helping to promote scholarship and, um, and professional development among Native Americans to take back control of their health and education systems. And that will change their worlds because it will allow them to exercise that tribal sovereignty to have a vision of what they want their communities to be in the context of the modern United States. And that desire, would you say that exists uh, in the leadership of Native communities across the board as it's growing? You're, it's obviously something you're trying to strengthen, but it sounds like it's something that's been embraced. Definitely. I think education in general is a is something that's very valued within tribal communities. We have created a, a certificate in American Indian Public Health at Hopkins, and we have over 100 Native American folks coming to those graduate level courses every year uh, in the winter and summer. And then that allows us to actually help people choose different um, graduate and doctoral degrees that we will offer scholarships for them to pursue. And it's been amazing to see the growth of that program over the past 10 years. Um, we have graduated now close to 40 um, graduate and doctoral students in public health who are Native wow. Americans returning to their communities to do very important jobs. And we've had over um, 1,500 Native Americans participate in the Institute courses. So we really see a groundswell of interest and it's just trying to you know, get the resources to match the demand. One of the things that I'm really interested in hearing you both talk about, and I'll, I'll start with Nick, is it, it's been said over and over and over again for the last eight months that, uh, you know, the pandemic has exposed and brought to light, uh, you know, the existing inequities that uh, have been with us 
for a long time. As somebody with a, you know, both a day-to-day journalist and a view of history, Nick, do you have a sense that when we get past this pandemic, will that understanding of the inequities stay with us? Will we go back to business as usual? Will there be more of a, a constituency for getting deeper into the root causes of why hunger exists, not just on Native American communities or obesity exists, not just on in Native American communities, but you know, in so many communities across the country, how do we develop? And this is something we struggle with, you know, honestly, every day at Share Strength and with the No Get Hungry campaign. Nobody's against feeding a hungry child. Uh, we get a lot of support for that. Not everybody's in favor of doing the things that, uh, you know, I think most of us would agree need to be done to ensure that a child's not hungry in the first place. Does this create? Is this an inflection point? And if not. What will it take? I know this is a hard question. If you can answer it, you're going to be doing us a big favor. <laughs> but it's an important one because at the end of the day, if, if we're not going to break this cycle, we're, we're just not going to make the progress we want to make. So my best guess is that it will be a modest inflection point on healthcare, uh, but less so on other areas. And I think on healthcare, uh, you know, the fact that the U.S. was the only major industrialized country that didn't have universal health care, that didn't have universal paid sick leave, that uh, it, normally in times uh, of chronic disease, that bothered society left less. But in times of infectious disease, suddenly everybody was aware that this really threatened the entire community. And so I think that there will be more of a push to try to uh, expand uh, uh, health care access. Uh, more broadly. I think that uh, trying to figure out how we deliver uh, vaccinations will be a part of that. And so I'm um, I'm modestly hopeful that we will uh, chip away at the uninsured and improve healthcare access, which will certainly be a good thing, albeit long overdue. But you know, maybe that will uh, carry over to some other areas. I mean, we, you know, we've we've seen uh, progress on mass incarceration, for example, over the last ten years, led in some places by by states like Texas. That uh, that some, it wasn't based on justice; it was simply based on cost of mass incarceration. And I, I tend to think mass incarceration was one of the great catastrophes catastrophes of the last fifty years. Um, likewise, the war on drugs seems to be gradually uh, fading away. Uh, we saw even red states uh, like Montana, Mississippi pass referenda, moving away from the war on drugs. But if we really want to create a more equitable society, then I think that education has to be one of the central aspects of that fight. And I don't see much sign that the country is really willing to grasp that nettle. And you know that includes uh, liberals as well as conservatives. Um, and fundamentally, we have a country uh, that exceptionally in the modern world bases school spending on local local funding. And so poor communities have poor schools and rich communities have rich schools. And um, we kind of shrug at that and we buy into it. And you know, the fact that Bureau of Indian Education Schools only have a 53% high school graduation rate, 53% in 2020, those kids who don't graduate are cooked and we are allowing them. I mean, we are failing them way before they fail us. And how we can accept a situation where, you know, almost half of 
kids in 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 Bureau of Indian Education schools don't don't graduate from high school, you know, that should be a national scandal. Uh, and you know, more broadly, the the fact that in the country as a whole, one in seven American kids still doesn't graduate from high school. So you know, I think that we're probably going to chip away at some of these inequities. But is this going to be the kind of grand inflection point, the turning point of history, where we would really begin to look at these profound inequities in the country? I wish that were the case, but I don't see much evidence for it. Yeah, and it makes, I mean, it makes you wonder, uh, what would it take if, if it's not this catastrophe uh, that we're living through right now to uh, open people's eyes to some of these inequities you know, part um, of the problem is is i think the narrative i mean that we so long as a country have had this narrative that when people struggle it's because of their lack of personal responsibility and that it's about bad choices they have made and you know there <laughs> there is no doubt that that people make bad choices and that those bad choices compound their their difficulties but when you can say that a you know that a, a child born in a county has a life expectancy shorter than that of cambodia that's not because that infant is making a bad choice it's because we as society are making bad choices about health care about education about jobs and, and so on and so on and so i think we really need to revisit this narrative we have about personal responsibility and you know look, it's fine to have that conversation about personal responsibility, but then let's also have a conversation about our collective responsibility to kids across the country. Yeah, you know, I always feel that one of the hardest things to help people see is that two things can be true at once. As you just said, you know, people could make bad choices, but society could be making bad choices at the same time. And one doesn't mean that the other is, you know, is not the case. And one doesn't let the other off the hook necessarily. Yeah, um, you know, we have that conversation when we think about uh, about cars, about driving. We all understand that a lot of car crashes uh, involve people who text while they drive, who you know take a drink and then drive, who drive too fast, uh, who are you know because the kids are arguing in the back seat, they're not paying enough attention to the road ahead. We we sort of understand that, and yet we do everything we can to mitigate the consequences of bad choice is your responsibility. We have airbags and seatbelts and padded dashboards, et cetera. Whereas in the social sphere, we have the equivalent of spikes and dashboards to really teach people a lesson when they make bad choices. And that's, you know, it's bad for those people, but it's also just bad for the country as a whole. You brought up this uh, high school graduation uh, rate on uh, reservation lands. I guess it was the, the Navajo uh, reservation and you also talked about education being, you know, the central aspect of uh, a fight to create a more equitable society. Uh, Allison, can you give us a picture of what schools look like uh, for Native Americans? Uh, and then, Nick, I want to come back and ask you, how, how do we elevate this issue? How do we get political leaders at every level to uh, make some different decisions, whether it's the funding structure you described or, uh, you know, it, to the degree to which education is central, and I completely agree with you, what you've described hasn't changed for a long time. But Allison, tell us what it, just what's it like for kids trying to get an education? Sure. I mean, one of the most stunning experiences I had early on at the center um, was being in Wyoming on the Wind River Reservation, walking into 
a public high school there and seeing all of the U.S. presidents um, in giant mounted portraits down the hallway with severe faces, um, black and white photos. That was what decorated these really grim halls. And then you see, you know, 35 kids jammed into a room um, with a non-native teacher um, learning, you know, U.S. history that doesn't include anything about their tribal communities or their tribal leaders or the resilience that, that, that they've demonstrated. So the educational system's there. It's been really interesting. My, my children went to a Quaker school and they learned more about Native American history than Native Americans do in public schools in, on their lands. Um, so a lot of the education is very demoralizing to young people. So that's one, one issue. Um, the second is the class sizes are huge. Um, there's a lack of transportation, public transportation to get kids to school. There are amazing teachers who will go in the mornings and pick up dozens of kids just to get them to school. Um, but there's so the, the social determinants that are interrupting kids' ability to learn and get a good education that would allow them to then go on to college um, are really dire. So, you know, again, you know, even just from a nutritional standpoint, Billy, that, that um, you know, children will go to school hungry, then they're fed, you know, the, the meals in the schools are almost inedible. There isn't anything that's homemade. Um, of course, they're opening packages and having, you know, corn pups, hush puppies, you know, it's just, um, there are just so many issues to, to deal with. And yet I have to say to you that one of the greatest prides for parents on a native reservation is to celebrate their child's high school graduation. It is, it is such a special time and it's so valued. So Native American youth right now in the country are the only youth of any race whose high school completion rates are decreasing. That is just unconscionable. Uh, Allison, you know, I don't want to miss the opportunity because you spend so much time personally uh, in these communities, in the schools, in people's homes. Put a human face on this for us. You're talking about the way families feel about when they see a, a child graduate. Uh, is there any story you can tell us about a a family or a child or, or somebody that you've worked with that would really bring this to life? You know, it's just interesting during COVID that one of the biggest tragedies for the, I'm, I'm thinking the white Mount Apache community is they couldn't gather to celebrate high school graduation. Like it, it's just a monumental rite of passage. Um, so they, they had a, an incredible um, caravan of cars that, it felt like every person in the community was in their car that day that after say high school graduated, just, you know, in the downtown driving in circles, just, you know, beeping their horns. And again, so proud of their kids um, for that rite of passage. And it's, it's make no mistake. It is highly valued, you know, and again, this idea of personal responsibility if children there aren't graduating from high school, it's because of generations of, of trauma that they've experienced on top of a really um, ineffective education system. And when we think, uh, Nick, of the education system uh, writ large, the problem that you've identified, uh, is it just that policymakers and politicians won't 
bite the bullet. I, I mean, I think a number of people have a diagnosis similar to yours, that we've got a funding structure where poor communities don't have the resources and so forth. What would it take to, to really change this? Well, um, I mean, one of the, so it, it would certainly take more resources and <clears throat> one could do that with, uh, you know, more Title I funding and more support for Bureau of Indian Education School to some degree. But to, there's a, you know, one can say to that to some degree, we're at that point, we're pouring money into a broken system and we do need to fix the system itself. And um, that is going to be harder. Um, one of the problems right now is that K through 12 education is just a toxic uh, war zone. And I'm from, from my point of view, I was uh, sympathetic to some of the experiments that, were done in the education reform movement that I think uh, showed, you know, some models of how there can be progress. And then, but that space is now, I think, become so toxic that I think it's difficult to see those models being built on. I'm a little more optimistic about the zero to five space, uh, early childhood, because that is a crucial. I mean, the, there's just so much evidence that that uh, if you invest early in children, may, maybe even, you know, especially the zero to three space, even more than the, the age four and five space, that you can uh, really support families when kids' brains are developing, put them on a better path with programs like home visitation. And that that is something that has broader bipartisan support. There are some red states uh, like Oklahoma that are doing a good job in that domain. And so as I think kind of what is, you know, what is more feasible, uh, then it may be making some progress on that uh, zero to five space, the early childhood uh, piece, uh, even though the, you know, the, the K through 12 space desperately has to be addressed as well. I found it a little disappointing that in the Democratic primaries, there was a lot of important talk about uh, improving college access. And yes, I mean, absolutely, we have to improve college access. But at the end of the day, still one in seven American kids still doesn't graduate from high school. And that's just a crucial need that we have to, uh, that, you know, that is the, the most urgent issue of all. I get really excited when I hear you talk about O to five or O to three. And I'm thinking of a conversation I had not too long ago with somebody you probably know, Jack Shonkoff at Harvard yeah. Center for uh, the Developing Child. And he was saying that, uh, the, you know, the way a child's brain uh, develops is so incredibly uh, developmentally sensitive that he said, o, o to five is just way too broad a category to think about it. Things are happening at every different stage. So it's O to three, or it might even be, you know, uh, there might even be other windows than that, but, you know, obviously yeah. the investment there can, can have a huge payoff. We're always looking for return on investment. That's, that's one of the places where I think we could, we could find it. I want to make sure we talk, Nick, about your, your newest book, Tightrope, which came out in early uh, 2020, I believe, Americans Reaching for Hope. And it felt like, I know you've also you know, written a number of other books, Half the Sky, many of us have read and know of. Tightrope felt like a really personal book grounded, you know, where you grew up in Oregon. Tell us a little bit about what, what brought you to write it. Well, um, my wife and I were traveling around the world covering humanitarian crises in Yemen or South Sudan or 
Bangladesh. And then we would go back all the time to the family farm that I grew up on in rural Oregon, where my mom is still on the farm. And I'd see my old friends, you know, many of them had been on, on my number six school bus. And we saw a humanitarian crisis unfolding there. And so today, uh, a quarter of the kids on my old school bus are dead from drugs, alcohol, and suicide. You know, I was... And we're uh, talking about people you knew, right? These oh, just, yeah. People, I mean, these are people that you knew. Very much so. I mean, we, you know, uh, that I was very close to. And, uh, and... I'd written a lot about sexual violence in other countries. And I think one thing that really shook me was that um, there were two boys on on my old bus who were both in prison for raping very young girls. And one of them was, uh, you know, a kid I walked to the bus with, uh, with every morning and knew him very well. And trying to understand how that happens in a community that had been so proud of its social fabric, of its values, and then gradually realizing that this wasn't a problem of one bus route or one small farm town, but of much of working class America, white, black, and brown. And that the country has really failed working class America, that the 1968 federal minimum wage, if it had kept pace with inflation and productivity, would now be $22 an hour, you know? <laughs> That rate, a lot of a lot of these problems would not be with us. Uh, that the median non-supervisory wage of 1978 is uh, lower in 2018 than it was in in 1978. And again, you know the the roots of this kind of dysfunction that happened in my beloved community uh, are complicated. They do involve globalization and technology but i think too often we're just glib about those factors and we don't acknowledge how much of it is also our choices as a country about jobs about job training about education about health care and so so you know i wanted to write about this i also i mean the, the fact that many of these people also then voted for president trump in 2016 and then again in 2020 um, you know, I wanted to try to come to grips with that, explain that to other readers and try to outline some, some policies that I thought would make a difference for communities like these and also, you know, perhaps help heal the country. Was it harder to write than some of your other books, just given the, the intimate nature of it? Oh, Billy, it is so much harder. You know, in a refugee camp in Sudan, you do these tough interviews and then you go, you know, but when when you talk to um, you know my my seventh grade crush uh, was uh, you know is smart. She's talented. She's a wonderful person, and uh, she became addicted to meth. She was homeless for seven years. Mm. By talking to her about these kinds of issues, and then about how she decided that the solution was to vote for President Trump. You know, it's. Uh, it's, it's, it, it was, it was very, very difficult. And then to try to, you know, portray people in a fully rounded way and acknowledge some of their screw ups, like, you know, using meth or in some cases cooking meth and yet doing so in a way that doesn't get readers to blame them, but to rather to understand them. Uh, it was, 
it, it was it, it was quite a challenge, but um, we um, we weren't quite sure how it was going to be perceived back in my hometown, especially by some of the people we wrote about. Um, but in fact, you know, they they don't want your sympathy. What they want is uh, to be listened to. Um, they want your understanding. And I think that they felt that that we conveyed that. Well, you certainly did from my point of view. The book is Tightrope, Americans Reach for Hope. And it's uh, it just feels like the perfect title for this moment. I don't know. You know, you you, you once again managed to meet the moment um, just in a book title. Thank really you. Powerful. One last question for each of you. And then, uh, Allison, I want to make sure people understand how they can support uh, the center and where to go to learn more. But, you know, I'm always asking myself, and the three of us have been at our respective work for a long time now about the degree to which things are getting better or worse. And fundamentally, I think they're getting better for a lot of reasons, even though we've put a spotlight on some of the the really hard stuff. But, you know, I think back, Allison, to when I was in, um, in middle school, maybe seventh, eighth or ninth grade, uh, I saw one of those uh, at the time, Save the Children ads about, you know, you can support this child for $20 a month, or, or you can turn the page, I think it was. Um, and th- those got kind of controversial, but I ended up doing it. And I had a little uh, child that they kept sending me information about, and I'll never forget it. It was for me, it was it was very powerful. Uh, she was a Navajo in Gallup, uh, New Mexico. Her name was Maxine Begay, which I think as I think I've learned is a fairly common Navajo name, Begay. And, you know, the way that 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 fundraising mechanism worked was they sent you pictures of her and updates on her school and and so forth. Um, And and the reason I guess I go into this is this was now, you know, a good 50 or 50 some years ago. And it feels like a lot of the the same problems are still with us. So from your point of view, Alan, I mean, I know because of Sheriff Strength's connection to the center that you've made tremendous progress in the lives of these families. But what lens do you look through? How do you digest the the progress versus the continuing need? I am an eternal optimist. I've seen so much positive change in the last 30 years since I've been at the center. Mostly I'm seeing the generation of youth start to consider their futures and be engaged in developing their own narratives about it. In fact, we got a recently a, a Gates grant, grand challenge grant um, to support the youth of the White Mountain Apache tribe, um, considering what is the meaning of poverty and wealth to them and how will they shape their future around um, development. And it's been so inspiring. I think of... Um, as you know, the rates of suicide are extremely high in Native American communities. And to watch tribes overcome these issues with really interesting policy decisions to enact you know, community surveillance and case management systems where people are trained, boots on the ground, to go home to home, to school, to play, playground, to find these kids who are at risk and to lend them the help they need to get connected to care. So there's just incredible resilience coming out of Native American communities. Um, Just during COVID, the idea that instead of having to rely on nurses or doctors to do these, um, the, the testing that's needed to be able to train folks who have a high school education to be on the front line, 
testing their community members, providing them information about how to stay safe. I think that we're going to have tremendous lessons coming out of Native American communities for the world, and especially around the value systems of honoring and protecting community before self. We are so desperate for that in our, in our communities. And I, it was fantastic to see the Native vote come out. Yes, they are on that tightrope, just like you know, other uh, rural Americans, but they have made a choice to elect the current president-elect um, because I think they have a great wisdom about in order to have a society that works, one has to be for all. And that's just part of the value system. So I have a lot of optimism, Billy. I'm glad to hear it. Nick, how about you? So in general, I share that optimism, but I think there are also some, some real challenges. And so let me first mention a couple of the challenges and then, then leave with the optimism. Um, I think, you know, one of the challenges is that um, geographically based interventions have proved a challenge. We haven't really figured out very well as a country, you know, what works to help a particular area and a lot of the areas a lot of the approaches we tried over the years like opportunity zones etc haven't uh, haven't tended to work very well um and i think we haven't changed these social narratives that i find very unhelpful like the it's all about personal responsibility enough we haven't managed to generate enough attention to uh, left behind communities of uh, whether native or african-american or hispanic or white i don't think we've uh, done well enough. We, we, we also haven't figured out how to, I mean, Robert Kennedy tried very hard to knit together the black and white working class so they would be present a common political front. And, uh, you know, 50 years later, uh, they, uh, they largely remain at odds. We haven't managed to do that. Um, so there, and, you know, education gaps, I think, uh, portend in many ways, ongoing economic gaps for, for the next 50 years. But, then on the other hand, uh, I think that, you know, by many metrics of, of healthcare or education, we overall have seen progress over the last half century or so. And you, you, uh, and, and that's also true of, um, I mean, in, in my community in, in Yamhill, Oregon, it, it, struck, it struck me that when I was growing up, um, I didn't know anybody who, who was Native American, and then, but now, so many of those same friends, uh, it turns out that actually they did have some Native ancestry, but 50 years ago, it was embarrassing to be considered uh, Native or partly Native, and now it's a source of pride, and I think that's a real sense of progress. Um, I also think that fundamentally, maybe the most important reason to be hopeful is <clears throat> that in the past, we kind of argued about what would work or what wouldn't work, and now we actually know what works. We have good tools like early childhood that we talked about earlier, home visitation. Um, we know that um, there was a debate whether native schools, whether, you know, if they study their own traditions, their own language, whether that uh, is kind of a diversion from, you know, skills that they need to know to compete in the 21st century or whether that will help. Well, now we know it helps, that it really helps with self-esteem, with performance, with outcomes. Um, and so I think now we have a toolbox that we know will 
mitigate problems and will reduce inequality across the country. And we definitely have the resources. What we still lack is the political will. And the challenge for all of us is going to be in the coming months and years to try to channel that political will, to use that toolbox to try to reduce inequality and, and improve opportunity. Well, and your uh, New York Times column is one of the best places where people can find out what are the tools in the toolbox. Um, and you're right, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the political will. Can we scale uh, some of these things that we know work? So, you know, we constantly reinforce the Share Strengths No Get Hungry campaign, and I'm, uh, and I'm sure you would see this. Childhood hunger in the United States, there's no lack of food. There's no lack of food pro programs. This is a solvable problem of the many issues that we all care about. Uh, this is one, whether it's on native lands or others, that is a solvable problem. But and as you know, Congressman Jim McGovern always says, hunger is a political condition. It's about political will. Allison, before we go, tell us how people can support the great work of the center. Oh, thank you, Billy, so much. So it's really easy to Google our center, Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. Um, our website is very descriptive about all the different kinds of work we're doing, a lot in early childhood, as we've discussed, a lot around obesity and diabetes prevention. Um, we work all across the United States in 140 different tribal communities. So you can go there and learn more. And um, I'm happy to be in touch with anyone who's interested. My contact information is at that website as well. And uh, we at Share Our Strength have donated, and we would urge everybody to do so. Uh, it has an immediate impact and it has a long-term impact. It's been so great having you both. Alison Barlow, the director of Johns Hopkins Center on American Indian Health uh, and a longtime uh, teacher to those of us at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Um, thanks for the, the work that you're doing, Allison. Oh, thank you so much, Billy. And Nick, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, I don't know I don't know that we're going to raise the seven million dollars that a Nick Kristoff column raises, but having Nick here maybe will help us raise at least some of that for the center. Uh, and Nick, just uh, really an honor to have you on um, your column in the New York Times, your book Tightrope. Uh, so many ways in which you've contributed to moving these discussions forward. Really, really grateful. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. And I'm going to thank all of uh, our listeners. You can go to adpassionandstir.com and find other episodes to listen to, to rate, to rank, to subscribe to, and to share with your friends. For all of us uh, at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign and our producer, uh, Paul Woodall at District Productive, uh, thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Mm -hmm.